So, time of prayer and fasting. We're in the middle of it, drawing to the end of it. Uh, if you're new here, we, what we've done is spend three Sundays kind of wrapping around this 10-day period. So on Sunday one, I helped us to prepare for time of prayer and fasting. On Sunday two, last Sunday, we just, just did some praying, which was great, wasn't it? Just to be a family and praying different things together off the back of Colossians. And today, having prepared and prayed, I want us to ponder in the sense of reflecting on what God's been saying to us this week. It's a chance for me to reflect on what God's been saying uh, to me for us this week and indeed over the past few months. So I want to kind of speak to us, I guess it's a bit of a family chat in some ways, kind of looking back over the last few months and also looking ahead as we begin a vision series uh, next week. And if you're kind of brand new here or you've just started coming, you're really, really welcome. Uh, I guess my, my invitation to you would be come and, come and take a seat, as it were, at the family table and look in as we we have a conversation together about what it is that God's saying and doing with us. And one of the things God's been speaking to me a lot about over the past few months uh, is this idea of church as family, which is not a revolutionary idea. Uh, in fact, if anybody does bring revolutionary ideas to you in the church, you should be very worried because uh, we've been doing this now for 2,000 years, and the church is very clearly a family in the Bible. And so that's been a lot of what God's been speaking about these last few months, and then again this week. And the passage he's kind of brought to my attention, I think, uh, is a passage from Matthew. It's a very short passage, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46 to 50. So if you have your Bibles, do turn to Matthew 12 and 46 to 50. Now, whenever we dive into a passage of Scripture, we need to know the context, don't we? We can't just dive in blind. We need to know the context of what's going on. So in Matthew 12, Jesus has begun his public ministry He's doing extraordinary things, teaching about the kingdom of heaven, as we heard earlier on. He's signposting the kingdom of heaven through incredible healings and miracles and signs and wonders and so forth. But his own family, his, uh, his mother and his brothers specifically, are less than impressed. And they come to basically tell him off. And we're told that in Mark's account of this story, Mark tells us that his family were waiting to basically tell him off and take him home and stop this nonsense. So... It's in that context that we're told this in Matthew chapter 12, 46 to 50. By the way, if you're finding it a bit bright, we're just trying to experiment between the two different light settings, what's going to work for us best. So we had kind of gloomy and atmospheric, and now we've got bright, and everyone can see me. It's probably bouncing off my head, is it? <laughs> hey, there we go. Okay, so definitely, let's go back to the first one. Um, but let's experiment and see how it goes, because we want it to be a good venue when we are in here. Where am I? Matthew 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my brother and who are my brothers? Sorry, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Hmm. From this passage, and indeed from the sweep of Scripture in general, I want to suggest to us this morning that a church family is called to be a greater family than any other. It's called to be a healthy family, and it's called to be a family with a vision. A greater family, a healthy family, and a family with a vision. Number one, a greater family. What do I mean by that? Jesus' words, if they don't shock you, they really should. These are shocking things that he says, and I think even we uh, could straight away connect into that. But they're even more shocking to the audience that he's speaking. Often in 21st century Western Europe, we need to contextualize ourselves sometimes into 1st century Judea and see it through their lens and eyes. And they would have been even more shocked than we are by what Jesus is saying. Why? Well, 
partly because of the importance of family, of biological family. That is entrenched in their culture. Indeed, it's entrenched through the whole story of the Bible. The Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament are, in some ways, the story of God working his plans and purposes through biological families. Think about it. At the beginning of the story, Abraham and Sarah, how's God going to work his plans and promises? Through giving them a miraculous son. They're far too old. It doesn't make any sense, but God promises them they're going to have a son. That's going to be the beginning of his story of drawing a people to himself. That son's Isaac's great-grandson is Joseph. How did his story work? Within the context of family, his brothers betraying him and ending up in Egypt. And towards the end of his life, he, he reconciles with his family, brings them to Egypt. The family multiplies and on goes the story. As a baby, little Moses. We forget that Moses was transferred by his mother, worried for his life. She was tra- he was transferred by her into, effectively, the royal family of Egypt. She put him on the, on the Nile and he was scooped up. And so again, God's plans work through this new kind of family that Moses finds himself in. Many, many, many years later, think about Ruth. Amazing woman who leaves the Moabite people. She changes her families. She follows her mother-in-law, though her husband is dead. It's got nothing to benefit her, but she follows her, gives herself to her, ultimately is married to Boaz, who's an Israelite. She then comes into the family of God, the family of Israel. And through her, God begins or continues to work the very line of Jesus Christ. Ruth and Boaz have, Ruth and Boaz, sorry, have a son. Their great-grandson is David, King David himself. He had a chaotic family, and yet God keeps on working his plans and promises through uh, the line of David. All the way through the Old Testament, you see constantly genealogies and, and lists of who was the father of who and who was the son of who. And of course, a thousand years after David, in his hometown of Bethlehem, one of his descendants, another man called Joseph, chooses to believe God that his fiancée really is pregnant, not by him, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. They have a son, Jesus Christ, who 30 years later begins his public ministry, and we come back full circle to the passage that we're in. What's the point? The point is, it is often in the context of family that God works out his plans and purposes. Constantly, it's the story of husbands and wives. It's the story of childbearing. It's the the story of, of, of sex being enjoyed in its intended context of marriage and children being produced. It's the story of family inheritances and, and who gets what and things being changed over. It's the story of parenting. And it's messy. There are messy, messy families that God works his plans and promises through. You see the pain of infertility. The pain of rebellious, disobedient children, the pain of adultery, his messy families that God works his plans and promises all the way through. Now, why do I say that? Two reasons. One, because I want to remind us of the special value that God places on the family. Some things you could say about that, but it's it's a picture of the Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit, God is a family himself. Marriage is not just a a lifelong commitment between two people as long as it works out. For us as Christians, the worldview tells us that marriage ultimately is painting a picture of the gospel, of the unity between Christ and his bride. Adoption, as I always say, the pinnacle of the accomplishments of the gospel. 
as Anna's already been praying, that the greatest pinnacle of the gospel is not only that we're forgiven and justified and made righteous, but that we step into the family of God and call him Abba, Father, as children and heirs. And the second reason why I make a point of this is to emphasize just how precious the family unit was to Jesus and his culture and his time. You see, in the West, we don't really expect, do we, kind of extended families to live in the same place. Like my brother lives in Brussels. He's got a family there. We see each other two, three times a year, and, and that's great. But that's kind of a Western cultural thing to an extent. We don't necessarily expect marriages to last until death, though many wonderfully do. We don't probably expect children to, to live with and care for their parents all the way through to old age, though many, many do. But in Jesus' world, it was very, very different. The family bond was tight and long-lasting. It was very normal for children to live with or close to their parents for their whole lives. And this is the same in other traditional cultures around the world now. As the oldest son, Jesus would have been expected to care for his mother particularly. Why? Because we think, most commentators think Joseph, his earthly father, had died. So it would have been a huge cultural expectation upon him to care for his mother. And for the Jewish people, as I've just been saying about the story of their, their history and the story of their scriptures, the family is inextricably linked to who God is and how he works out his purposes. So to value the family is, is to kind of value your national identity as the people of God. It's a big deal. So with all of that in mind, hear what Jesus is saying or clock what the significance of what Jesus is saying. When he's told, your mothers and brothers are here and they want to speak to you, and he basically says, sorry, who? My mothers and brothers and, and sister, they're, they're here. They're the ones that do the will of God. It would have been utterly shocking for him to say that. If he wasn't unpopular already, which he certainly was, that would have added to it. And I make a point of this because this is how much Jesus elevates the family of God. This is how much he makes the family of God to be a greater organism, if you like, than the biological family. Now hear me. I am not, and nor is Jesus, relegating the biological family. Jesus never does that. Later in in Matthew, he's very clear about honoring our, our parents, our father and our mother. We've just seen that, that family is at the heart of who God is. At the end of his life, when he's hanging on a cross in sheer agony, when I'd be thinking about only myself, Jesus thinks about his mother. And he sees his mother, Mary, in front of him and says to her, Mother, this is your, this is your son, pointing to John. He says, John, this is now your mother. He's thinking about his own family in his very last agonizing moments. So Jesus does not relegate the biological family. But what he does do is elevate the family of God to an even greater place. That makes sense? The family of God, expressed now through the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual mothers and fathers joined eternally to each other. Jesus is saying, that's a greater family. That's a greater family. Allegiance to our heavenly father and to our heavenly older brother is elevated to an even greater degree than that which we have to our earthly family. Now, I know I'm probably putting questions in your mind. Hang on, what about this? What about that? But we need to take Jesus at his word from what he's saying and take the New Testament language at its word as it constantly refers to us as brothers and sisters. 
Last week, remember in Colossians, we had Epaphras. Paul says, Epaphras, great guy. He's doing great things in the ministry. Anyone remember what he, how, what he calls him? Come on, shout it out. Say, beloved, beloved fellow servant. Not just this guy that I do stuff with, that we're in ministry together, on mission, church plantings. It's my beloved fellow servant. It's the language of family. Paul refers to himself as a father of the churches that he oversees. John, in 1 John, writes to these Christians and calls them dear little children. The church is called the bride of Christ. John even calls it, I think, the, the older lady at one point. The language of family is throughout the New Testament. So, my question, I'm taking a while to get there, is this. Do we see each other as brothers and sisters, united together in an eternal bond of love? That's the emphasis of what Jesus is saying. He's not relegating the biological family. He's saying, when you come through the gateway of repentance and faith in me into the family of God, you're now in something that will last forever, the bonds of which cannot be broken. So let me ground this a bit in reality. Carol and I were discussing this the other day. We took some time out just to pray for our family and to kind of get fresh vision for our family and for this, our church family. Took two days holiday to do so. It was great. Really special time of meeting with God. And we were reminded that our marriage is only for this age. So Jesus says something else pretty shocking. He says that there will be no marriage in heaven. Meaning when Christ returns to judge the whole earth, to make all things new, to heal and restore this groaning creation and bring heaven onto earth, when he does that and his bride, the church, is joined to him forever, there will be no marriage. And yet, she and I will continue to be a brother and sister in Christ. So I'm not relegating marriage. The Bible exalts marriage. I'm committed to this one woman for the rest of my life. I'm going to do all I can that she flourishes until one of us pops in. <laughs> but then, that, if you like, era in our life, that will be it. Unless Jesus returns before that. And we will live forever somehow in a more meaningful, deep, joyful, intense relationship than our marriage has been. That's what Jesus must mean. He can't mean, you guys are married when you get to Sorry. You've got to like, you know, just be single for a while. I'm so pleased that Elaine brought what she brought earlier on. Because she was touching something. Thank you, Elaine. Touching something of the profundity of what it is to be a child of God and a brother and sister in the community. Because that will last forever. Now, our marriages will have a legacy that will last forever. But the institution itself won't. And that's why I'm saying Jesus is talking about a greater family that exists. And it's us. This community with all of its foibles and oddities and differences and different shades of color and background and age. It's a greater family that you've been joined into. Do you see the person sat next to you now as a brother and a sister? Someone who you are united to, if they are in Christ and a Christian, someone who you're united to forever. That may slightly depress you as well, I don't know. <laughs> Tom Wright, who's a fantastic theologian, former Bishop of Durham, writer. He writes this. The early Christians did their best to live as an extended family, caring for each other in the way in which, in that world, extended families did. 
They called each other brother and sister, and they really meant it. They lived and prayed and thought like that. Children of the same father, following the same older brother, sharing goods and resources where needs arose. When they talked about love, that's the main thing they meant. Living as a single family, a mutually supporting community, the church must never forget that calling. And I think he's right. And I think it's been a profound challenge to me. I wouldn't say I've forgotten that calling, but I think just a confession moment. This is not a woe is me moment. It's just the honest father confessing to the family. I don't think I have valued the church as family as much as I should, given the sweep of scripture and how it uh, makes that a profound ethos at the heart of the church. I'm sorry for that. All right, so that's a make a heavy thing, but it's important when we get it wrong, we do repent, we ask for forgiveness. And I know God's grace, and I trust your grace is sufficient to allow us to move on. But I know I've got that wrong, and I want to get that better. That we should understand what it is, not just to be a bunch of people doing stuff together, but to have an eternal bond of brotherhood and sisterhood that is more profound than any community you'll find on earth. Number two, if we are a family, how can we be a healthy one? If we are a family, how can we be a healthy one? Notice, I haven't said how can we be a growing one, though I long for us to grow. But the reality is if we focus on health, then healthy families tend to multiply. Well, I think there's plenty we can learn actually from this very short text. I love how the Word of God can be mined for every last detail. It's a few lines, but I reckon you can mine it for three particular things that characterize a healthy church family. And what I'm going to do with each one is give us a bit of a, like a I wasn't going to say this, but kind of a school report, but not really a school report. A bit of a well done and a bit of a can we aim higher on each of these three indications of what a healthy family looks like. Okay? The first indication of a healthy church family is that it's maturing. How do I know that? Well, because Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father. In other words, obedience. And a key sign of being a mature Christian and a mature family of Christians is that we we don't just uh, kind of head down, get on with obeying, but actually there's a sense of joy and passion and understanding for what it means to do the will of the Father. Now, Jesus doesn't mean you come into the family of God by cultivating lots of obedience, doing obedient things. That's never going to make it. We're always clear about that at King's Church. Grace all the way. But what he is getting at is when you do step into the family of God and become a new creation and a child and heir, as a response to what's been done for you, you will start to desire the will of the Father. Because he's perfect and amazing and awesome and does things for our good. My little girl is... 10 and a bit months old. She doesn't know what obedience is yet. And if she does, she's doing a very good job of hiding it. Because she's not mature. She's not mature yet. But as she matures, please God, she will learn what obedience is. And maybe, he says, optimistically and idealistically, at times she will love to be obedient. As a sheer response of delight and joy to her. (laughs) So, how are we doing as a maturing family of God. Well, I want to say well done for some things. I want to say well done to those of you who do, at cost to yourself, choose to be obedient to Christ. 
There are some of you who have made decisions, though it doesn't suit you or seem to work for you or even seem to be working out at the moment. You're choosing to say, Jesus, I trust you. You're better. And I believe that obeying you and following you is always for my good, though this is painful. Well done. I want to say well done for understanding the value of serving. Serving in the family is a sign of maturity. I imagine it will be a long time before Izzy starts to volunteer to serve. But as you, as you mature, you realize more and more, okay, I'm in this family because the son himself did not stay in the riches of heaven, but left and came down to earth and humbled himself, not to be served, but to... And so we serve him and our brothers and sisters as a result of that. Well done. You guys are good at serving. Thank you for joining teams of late, those of you who have. There's still plenty of spaces, particularly in this wonderful area of setting stuff up and operating AV. I'm going to lay it on young men particularly. Take some responsibility, get some broad shoulders, turn, here, turn up here at 8 and 8.30 and lug and shift some stuff. Because that's how young men often grow, by taking responsibility. Thank you for those that are doing it. We can't keep on exhausting certain people doing small things. That's not excluding the ladies, but I want to just speak to my brothers in a loving and firm way. The church family flourishes when men put their shoulders back, take responsibility. So let's do that. That was a well done, by the way, as well. <laughs> well done for hungering for more of the Spirit. There's a hunger here for more of the Spirit that shows maturity. It's inspiring. Well done for those of you particularly who hunger for a deeper understanding of the Word of God. It shows maturity. And you're not content with being fed milk. You want to be fed solid food and to explore solid food and keep on exploring the depths of the Bible. Well done for that hunger. Well done. Another sign of maturity is a willingness to change or be open to change. Some of us embrace change. Some of us flee from change. Or we sit on the spectrum somewhere in the middle. I want to say well done, church family, for being open to change. We're moving venues, changing of leadership to an extent. Changing even how we're doing a bit of worship in the morning. Opening up, just having prayers and exhortations from the floor, bringing more directional things through the microphone. Well done for being open to change. Let's see what God's going to do as we open up ourselves to more of the Spirit in our, in our meetings. We want and we are hungry for that. And I'd encourage you to take responsibility to move us forward in that. Don't wait for somebody else to pray out. Don't wait for somebody else to bring uh, prophecy and song and tongues and so forth. So the family matures. How can we aim higher? I've already given the young men an obvious way to aim higher. But as elders, we have felt we want to aim higher. We want to aim higher as fathers in equipping you for increasing maturity. I think, and to be honest again, I think there are times in my passion to make church a place for people who don't know anything or are exploring or are wondering or are doubting, in my passion to make it a place where they can explore and make sense of things, at times I have fed you milk and not solid food. And so as elders, we want to feed you and equip you. It's not about uh, Philip speaking to people. It's about Philip and the eldership team and the wider leadership team and our, and our wives and other people equipping us, all of us, to go out and be able to extend the kingdom in our context and our workplaces. I want to aim higher for maturity. I encourage you to aim higher for change. There will always be change. Families always change. We will parent Izzy very differently when she's 14 to when she's 10. It would be weird if we didn't. Families adapt and they change. Some things will never change. Go back to our Knowing God series about who God is and what it, that will not change. One faith, one baptism, one Lord, as Paul says. But there will be change. There are things coming onto our heart for the future and the long term that might involve change, might involve you having to put somebody else's needs first, 
having to put preferences aside. Are you open to change as a family? Second aspect of being a healthy family, if the first one is maturing, the second one is loving. Obviously, from the language of brothers and sisters that Jesus uses, he doesn't say, come and be a a worker in my factory. He does say be a co-laborer in the field, but he's not inviting us to a, a business operation. He's inviting us to a dynamic of love. I want to say well done, King's Church, for loving people. I think particularly you welcome people brilliantly. That was in place well before I was around. I've always heard about it. I've tasted it. I think we welcome people brilliantly. I think not just welcoming. I think many of us, many of you love each other spectacularly well. I can remember as a personal example, I had my first ever skiing holiday booked a few years ago, and it got cancelled at the last minute. I was gutted. And someone in this church said, that looks like a great holiday. I'd like to pay for you to go on a holiday instead. And they did. Other people in this church who came to our home, Carol and I, when we were on honeymoon, and uh, with our permission, hasten to add, and they came in and they redecorated our whole home and made it far more wonderful and homely than it was beforehand. People have made us meals for our, when we had a baby. People have written to me uh, uh, messages and emails of, co- of encouragement, prophetic encouragement, scriptural encouragement. It's a profound experience to not just be known, but also loved. It's a profound experience not just to be loved, but actually known for who you are and all your vulnerability as well. I want to thank you for that and acknowledge the, the well done that is deserved for the love that takes place. But you might hear those examples from my life and say, well, that's great, it builds faith, I've seen that as well, wonderful, more of that. You might say, well, it's great for you, Philip. Well, I guess you're the pastor, so people might do nice things for you. I haven't, I haven't tasted that. This is quite, so let me just read to you what, what someone uh, in this church family said to me recently. And I only read it because it's not the first time I've heard it. So I think it carries a little bit of weight. And it's not a heavy thing, but it's honest family chat. And this person said, I have felt increasingly isolated from within the King's Church family that I belong to, which at times has left, me, left us feeling lonely and has impacted our walk with Christ. Like I say, I don't read that to make us feel guilty or to be heavy, but to be my observation that we could aim higher when it comes to truly and genuinely being loved and known in this place. The church family, given what it is, should not be a place where someone can feel lost and isolated and go backward in their faith because of that. So that sobers me. There will always be people in the church family who find things hard. There will always be problems. Take it from me. But I wanted to bring that to us as an inspiration to aim higher when it comes to loving and knowing each other. Let's not be great just at welcoming people. In some ways, that's the easy bit. A handshake and a coffee and a hi and how are you doing and what do you do and come sit with me and it's great. But the real stuff of being brothers and sisters is taking steps towards people to know them and love them. Not just know them because that makes them feel vulnerable and exposed. And not just say you love them because that's just fluffy, but to truly get an understanding of who they are and to love them accordingly as brothers and sisters is a profound thing. Do we see each other as brothers and sisters with an eternal bond? Do we take steps towards those who are not like us? to the generations mix, to the youngsters, honor those who are older and ask for their advice and their wisdom. To the older ones, take steps to draw the younger ones into their family and accept it if they're a bit weird and immature. 
racially, ethnically. Got loads of nations represented in this family. I was thinking about this morning. I think every continent on the globe is represented in some way. Some with English as a second language, a third language. Are we taking steps towards them in light of them being a brother and a sister with whom we will dwell forever? So it starts now. I think we can aim higher, King Church family, when it comes to really knowing and loving each other. Third sign of being a healthy family that I think also comes out uh, admittedly, implicitly from this passage. And it'll be no surprise that I say is being outward looking. Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That one word, whoever. He's saying, it's for anyone. The family of God is for anyone. Anyone that comes to faith by professing Christ as Lord and steps into the family of God and the fruit of that is obedience and maturity. Anyone can come in. Jesus completely re, uh, reworks his Jewish listeners' mind as to what it means to be in the family of God. Jesus is incredibly outward-looking. came to seek and save the lost, those who don't know, those who are outside, those who are hurting, those who aren't hurting but are apathetic. He came to save them too, and he came to institute this family of God as the means by which he would do that. So, what people call evangelism is a helpful biblical word with a gifting that goes to it. But the only danger of that is that we think about people who do evangelism, people who have an evangelistic gift, and we need them, definitely. But as I see the sweep of Scripture and the way that Jesus takes disciples and releases them, it's for all of us to be outward looking, to have our doors open, to be extending the offer of grace all the time in different ways. I want to say, well done. Well done, King's Church family, for being missionally minded. I, I think we do get that. I think we do know what it is to be a family with our doors open, to always have a seat spare at the table. That's part of Carol and I's vision for our family growing up. There'll always be a seat at our table. And I think that's going to merge into this church family. There's always going to be a seat at the table. Always. Whatever you like, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you think, whatever your background is, whatever the questions you have, there is a seat at this table, and we will make room for you. And I think you guys are missionally minded. I think to aim higher, we could be more missionally fruitful. I think we're missionally minded. I think we could be more missionally fruitful. And there's a whole, whole thing there to unpack. And I guess it taps into um, knowing God more and more and being so excited by him that we make him known. It taps into being regularly filled with the Holy Spirit who brings the power to make him known, gives us courage when we lack it and words when we lack it. It might even tap into maybe a bit of apathy sometimes. We talk the talk. Yeah, Alpha, great. Let's go for Alpha. God bless Alpha. Do we pray and fast over people? Write their names down. Pray for them. Fast for them. Go and ask them. Take a risk. Are we prepared to change some things? Not key doctrinal value. I'm not talking about that, but preferences in the family, to make room for people who aren't yet in the family, don't know how it works. It's a whole thing there. But I want us to aim higher when it comes to being missionally fruitful. David, thank you for inspiring us this morning of what it means to see people find this family to be a place where they can come on a journey of faith.
So, church is a family. If you haven't got that this morning, I've done a very bad job. Healthy family. It's growing in maturity. Growing in love for each other. And consistently and focused on being outward looking. In other words, you could say, point three this morning, every family, every church family needs a vision. Every church family needs a vision. And you could say from this text that when it comes to a family that is mature and growing in maturity and sees radical obedience as a result and is mining the scriptures and hungry for the spirit, all of that you could say is about a church that wants to know God in simple terms. The second sign was loving. We want to be a, a church family where you can be known and loved. I say it again, if you're just known, that's utterly terrifying. If Anna just knows everything about me but doesn't love me, I feel very vulnerable. If she says that she loves me but knows nothing, it doesn't make a difference. But a community that cultivate loving knowledge of each other and exhort and encourage and even rebuke and challenge because it's done in love and build one another up and bear with one another, that's an exciting place to be. The loneliness stats are terrifying, aren't they, in our nation? It's like an epidemic, people say. And the implications on one's own physical health are profound. People in Kingston might not know it in the sense of being hungry for the truth of the gospel and the challenge of God's judgment and so forth. But what their immediate need is, or their surface need often is, a place where I can be known and loved. So by being deeply pastoral and caring, we actually become probably more missionally fruitful. That's taken a long time to get through the thick skull. So thank you for bearing with me. Thirdly, outward looking is, means making God known. So, final slide please, Peter. What I'm saying is that as elders we have prayed and planned and talked to many others and been on a journey of some three years. And the journey is important. The journey takes you to the destination. You can't just jump to the destination. Even though many of you might say, of course you'd say these kinds of things. You're a church. But you have to go on the journey of exploring and asking and praying and wrestling and challenging and putting down preferences and receiving discipline of God and so on and so forth. And at the end of it, you come out with this, that we as fathers will present to you that we believe we exist as a church family to know God, be known and loved, and make God known. And it's not rocket science. But I'm telling you, it comes from a place of prayer and of rest of us. I'm sure Mark would testify having joined the journey. We exist to help people, more people, know God, be known and loved in the house of God, and make God known to our cities and our communities. And I mention that now because we're going to be starting a, a vision and value series next week. We're going to take some nine weeks to go through and unpack this because there's an awful lot behind it that we want you to understand and to weigh and by God's grace I trust to catch hold of and carry further than we can carry. Isn't that what fathers should do? Release their kids to go, wait, father. So we're going to take three Sundays to take each part of this statement. So next week, Patrick will look at what does it mean to be a family who are focused on knowing God and without stealing his thunder, by which we mean all kinds of things. Deepening our passion for him in worship and in the spirit, loving the Bible, feeling like every year I know God better. He's more magnificent, more worthy, more wonderful. He's more sufficient than he ever was before. We want to cultivate a family where people can say, this year I've got to know God better. The week after that, Mark will look at what it is to be known and loved within the family of God. 
What does it look like for us to do that? It's not just, let's keep doing life groups. What does it mean for this dynamic that I'm putting before you to emerge more and more with us? What does it mean to build on what's already here, the well-dones that are in place? And then the third week, I'll look at what it means to, be, to making God home. What does it mean to be a family where, as I say, the doors are always open and there's a space at the table and we exist for a greater purpose than ourselves? And after that, We'll spend four more weeks unpacking, if you like, the values that we think will take us on that journey. So we're saying, we want to be a people like this, a family like this. Know God, be known and loved, make God known. But what will that, what will that look like along the way? And we'll take, spend four weeks unpacking the values, the, the things that we'll mine into as we aim to be a family like that. And then to cap it off, we'll have John Ford from Istanbul. I, I pray, visa permitting, will be with us just to restate our commitment and our passion for making God known to the nations. And that'll be a great way, I think, to finish. We'll have a, a lunch together. And the following week, we've left completely open and we'll see what God wants to do in the lead up to it. And then it'll be Advent. And then it'll be Christmas. Da -da 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 -da. It's 12 o'clock. We, we need to finish. Um, I'm conscious that you might want to get some prayer for some things. I'm conscious that you might have sensed God speaking to you this morning and that you want to work it through in prayer or in conversation. Um, those testimonies are so inspiring. Money, you think, I, I want some of that. You want to go and find that person and pray with them. You might be processing all that I've been talking about in terms of what this family is like and where we're going and you've got questions. I'm saying that to work out what to do next. Um, but if you have questions, do two things. Three things. One, pray. Two, tell us them. And three, as you tell us them, be here on a Sunday through this term to hear and to consider and to weigh and to catch. Another little challenge. Being at church one Sunday in four, it makes it hard to really know your church family. It makes it hard to catch the vision. I'm not anti-holidays. I'm not anti-weekends away. But if the church family is a greater organism, organism in some extraordinary way, then our diaries will reflect that. And come on, hear me. It's not the church by saying, come on, make sure you get here because I'm going to look good if you're all here. I'm just trying to put you what I think Jesus is getting at. I don't think he'd have recognized one in four as a brother and sister communion. And this term particularly, we want to put a vision before you that we'd love you to consider and to weigh and our trust to catch hold of. And if you just want to get some prayer, we'll just do that. So maybe we'll have some music in a second after I close. And this space here is great at the front. You can go, I'll, I'll pray with you, Anna, pray with you. Life group leaders, Mark and Kate, come and join us. Make a little hub here to receive some prayer for anything at all. If you share testimonies, could you be around as well to pray? And you might prefer just to pray where you're at or ponder where you are or just use the space to sit and reflect. You can do all those things too. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, everybody else. Um, Finally, we'll say, if you are like, this is, you're new to this church family, you're looking in, I just want to say to you, there is a seat at the table for you. It might not be the family for you. There are loads of churches in Kingston. Hundreds of them. <laughs> Find the one that works for you. Find the one where they preach the gospel, are full of the spirit, and are making God known in wonderful ways. 
But if you are here, just use this next term to look in, take a seat at the table, and to consider whether this is the place that you can join and bring your gifts and talents to bear, where you can be equipped to mature and we can benefit from your response. So be with us and look in. Enough, Philip. Stop talking and just pray. <laughs> Father God, I pray. Uh, and I pray for all these things that have been mentioned. And I thank you for this wonderful church family. I thank you for their patience. <laughs> I thank you for their desire to know you, to generate a community of genuine, deep, authentic family, brotherhood and sisterhood. And I thank you for their willingness to to, to keep the doors wide open and to make a seat at the table for anyone and everyone. Because we say, whoever comes into the family of God and does the will of the Father is in the family of God. So we say, Lord, would you use these next few weeks? Would you keep speaking to us? Would you be with those of us who are preaching, who are seeking you? Would you be with those of us who are feeling uncertain? Give us that, that peace to consider, to weigh. Would you be with those who are just feeling impatient? When can we get going? Lord, would you just be with us? You are the perfect father. There are some wonderful fathers and mothers in this church, and we're all imperfect. We have one perfect father. We have one perfect older brother, and we look to you to nurture and teach and release our church into a fresh season. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.